you would, go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we are making our way through a series of messages through the book of Revelation. And we are taking our time. Uh, I've equated it to uh, walking through a creek and turning over stones to rocks to see what comes out. Uh, another way to look at it would be kind of like digging for gold, where you do a lot of effort and a lot of work, but then you come back and see uh, see um, the fruit of your labors, uh, if you will. And so we are just kind of taking our time and uh, walking through. In Revelation chapter 1, uh, we began walking, though we've done an overview, we began kind of walking through uh, this letter. Uh, from the, uh, the Apostle John, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And um, just to kind of briefly recap, we've said it is the Revelation singular, Apocalypsis. One, uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ. And your pastor doesn't need any reasons for his blood pressure to go up, so please don't post on Facebook or, or come up to me and say you're in studying revelations because it is not. It is one revelation. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, remember the transmission. We looked at this last week. This revelation God had and God gave to Jesus. God gave Him, Jesus, to show His bondservants uh, the things which must soon take place. Now, how did He do that? Well, He sent and communicated it by His angel to John. And notice how John designates himself. Uh, he could claim apostleship. He could have claimed the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, but instead, rather, he uh, considers himself as we all should. Though we are saints uh, and though we are children of God, we are also bond servants. So communicated by his angel to his bond servant, John. And we saw that John testified to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then we saw also that there is an added blessing to those who who not only hear but heed this book. And we saw this in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy um, uh, uh, and heed the things which are written in it uh, for the time is near. So if you want an added blessing, then read the words. Don't avoid the book of Revelation. But don't just read them, right? Hear them. Uh, hear the word of God. Read it. We read Scripture publicly because we want to hear the Word of God. Uh, but also obey, right? Obey the Word of God. And in fact, the, uh, uh, the reason we want to obey it, as we saw last week, is because the time is near. So today we're going to pick up in, in uh, verse 4. Verse 4. And I want to read uh, this next section. And we're going to spend two weeks on this section. Um, and, and it'll make sense as we, as we walk through it. But today we need to lay the groundwork and then we'll tie everything together uh, next week. So let's pick up in verse 4. And um, John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now the reason this is important is because there are some books of the Bible that are written so that unbelievers can learn about Christ and who He is that they can believe and, and be saved. 
Uh, the reason the Gospel of John is such a great book to give to lost people is because they can read and learn about Jesus, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, and John even says that his purpose is that you may believe uh, in, in Jesus. But here it's written to Christians. It's written to churches. And so in, in the midst of this, there's not a lot of, uh, of explanation in a lot of ways. There are a lot of things that are sort of assumed that Christians know uh, in the book of Revelation. And so we have to dig those out and we have to study those. Some things that even we're going to see today that would be commonplace to them. And typically when you and I read it, we just kind of skip over and go, all that stuff must have meaning, but I have no clue what it is. But let's get on to the stuff that I know. They would have this common knowledge about these things. And so rather than just skipping over and saying, oh, well, and going on um, or coming to a word that we we can't pronounce or say um, and, and just mumbling and then going on, we're going to kind of dig here uh, today and we're going to unlock some of these things. Uh, hopefully that will help us to better understand uh, this book. But it is written to the seven churches that are in Asia, and we're going to have more to say about those seven churches when we get to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, when Jesus himself writes a letter to those churches. And here's what he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so from verses 4 down through the end of verse 6, we're going to take three weeks to study and unpack these um, verses and to kind of turn over some stones, chase some things down. As I've said before, uh, four out of five verses uh, in the book of Revelation refer to, directly quote, or allude to Old Testament passages of Scripture. I said we've done some foundation study in the past, but we're going to go back and tie those things in uh, today. So if you want to tie, if you want to take this kind of three-week series on this particular section, uh, it'll make more sense next week. Uh, this would be sort of entitled "Jesus Loves Me." Okay, uh, if you take all of these things that we're going to look at really over the next three weeks. The one overarching truth that I want you to understand is is that Jesus, present tense, loves me. And it will become apparent why we're going to call it that as we walk through these verses today and even more uh, next week. So here's John. He issues his greeting, grace to you and peace. Now look at this. Where does this grace and peace come from? Grace, of course, is the undeserved favor of God. There's a difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? We do something wrong and we expect a heavy hand of consequences to come down on us. And what do we say? Have mercy on me, right? Don't let what I justly deserve come upon me. That's mercy. Grace, on the other hand, 
is getting what you don't deserve. It's getting what you don't deserve. None of us deserve the grace of God to fall upon us. None of us deserve to be saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We were sinners in our own path and journey and chasing uh, after hell wide open. But God comes and in His grace gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us right salvation. He gives us eternal life. He gives us all the promises that are yes and amen uh, in God. Beloved, that is grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And then peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. But peace, if I could say it this way, peace is... um, I would say it this way. Peace is the presence of God in the midst of whatever situation that you're facing. Now, why would I say that? Because the Bible says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Right? Peace is not the absence of trouble. Uh, We have seen within our small group, even in recent days, that tragedy and heartbreak and suffering happen. But what we've also seen in the midst of those things is a peace which passes all understanding. And where did that come from? Beloved, you didn't create that. You didn't develop that within yourself. You're right. This is not your personality coming out that tends to stay calm in in every situation because I know some of you and you even get worked up in a big box store buying chain. (laughs) I thought Jill would appreciate that. And so... um, I'll just let Jill explain that story to you. But long story short, we don't have it within ourselves to to bring about peace, right? But in whatever situation we're going through, no matter how difficult, no matter what the journey is, when the presence of God is with us, then we can experience an overwhelming, joyful contentment unlike any other. So it's not just how we feel in the situation, it's who's with us and who gives us perspective in the midst of what we do that we would call peace. Now, look look at where this grace and this peace comes from because it's vitally uh, important. It, John's not saying that, that he, uh, or no, he's not telling the churches that, that you ought to work this up and in among yourself. He says it comes. Now look at this, and look at this description from who it comes from. It comes from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Okay? Now, whenever I was first studying this, and the reason I want to pause here a, a little bit and, and walk through this is because a lot of times when we're reading Scripture to go along, then we'll just say uh, who, who is and was and is to come, whatever that means, and the seven spirits, whoever they are, I'm sure that's a good thing as well, who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of dead. Da-da-da-da-da. Let's get on to the good stuff. Verse 7, Behold, He's coming, right? Or the end of, of verse 5, Who loves us and, and get there. And so we miss a lot of what is found in this. And I just want to kind of pause and walk through because there's some fascinating things uh, right here. And, right, we're not in a hurry. Uh, If Jesus comes back, we won't need this study anyway. And so uh, we're not trying to see how quickly we can get through. We're walking through the book. 
turning over stones, right? We're walking through the book, digging for treasure and gold. First thing that I would notice as I read this and as I was studying this, uh, it says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. There are other places in the Bible that refers to Jesus, right? It refers to Jesus. And yet here... What I see is, is I see that designation, and then I see something about seven spirits, and now look in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. So what I see is, is Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, Him, capitalized in my Bible, clearly God, who is and was and who is to come. What is that referring to? We would normally see that designation referring to Jesus, but in this case, it is referring to God the Father. It's referring to God the Father. Now, now let's be clear. The Bible teaches both in John chapter 10 and John chapter 14 that Jesus is God. And as you've heard me say before, um, the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are co-equal, right? They are co-existent, and they are co-eternal. That means that, listen, they've always existed in eternity past and will always exist in in eternity future. That that though we see the hierarchy because Jesus submitted Himself to the the Father, and we read about this all through John's Gospel, when Jesus says, I only do the things that my Father tells me to do, I only say the things my Father tells me to say, I only go the place my Father tells me to go, He willingly submits Himself to, to the Father. But as God in eternity past, listen, they are co-equal, co-eternal. They have always existed forever together in community with with one another, co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal. So, for example, we might go, if you would, to John chapter, John chapter, um, John chapter ten. Let's look at John chapter ten. John chapter. 14, and let's take a, a, a look at, uh, at this. Um, John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. If you're wondering what the Feast of Dedication is, it's not listed as one of the three feasts. Uh, in Exodus chapter 23, and it's not listed as one of the seven things that God gave in Leviticus chapter 23 as well. It's a complete separate feast. Um, this would be a primarily Jewish Jewish feast. It's not sin because they celebrate it. It just wasn't commanded in the Old Testament in order to do so. So without taking a lot of time here, in a nutshell, we've studied in the past how in the temple of God, the glory of God came down on the temple. And because of their rebellion and because of their disbelief and because of their refusal to repent and return to God, God ultimately, you can read about this in the book of Ezekiel, removed His glory from the temple, which allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Syrians to come in and to destroy Jerusalem and, yes, even destroy the temple and destroy the temple and, um, uh, and carry the people off into Babylonian captivity. Well, after the Babylonian captivity and they came back and rebuilt the temple, if you remember, as we've studied in the past, they were expecting the glory of God to come down on the temple, 
but it never did. Instead, there was a stone placed within the temple, and we walked through uh, the stone prophecies uh, of Jesus. But the glory of God never came down on the rebuilt temple uh, at all. In the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, remember there, there was a span of history of about 400 years. Um, there's a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He, he came in and basically desecrated and destroyed the rebuilt temple. In fact, he sacrificed pigs on the altar and, and totally did all those things. About 63 B.C., the temple was rebuilt, and they began to observe the Jewish people began to serve the sacrifices uh, again. And part of the, the feast that they added at that time would be the, the Feast of Dedication. Notice what it says, that it took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple of, in the portico of Solomon. Um, this Feast of Dedication is also referred to as the Feast of Lights. Notice it's in wintertime, and so if you want to kind of get an idea, this is where Hanukkah came from. So Hanukkah would be this particular feast. That's where the, the connection uh, is. So then the Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. Now look at this. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, now look at this, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. But don't miss verse 30. I and the Father are one, are one. People say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. If He didn't claim to be God there, among the many other places where He used the distinction, I am, they apparently thought that He was God, equal with God. They thought that. Why? Because, look at their response. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. And why, why were they going to stone Him? Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you. But look at this. But for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And so here is Jesus, and Jesus is claiming to be God. And it's clearly, clearly, um, he... he uh, is claiming to be God and is, in fact, indeed God. Indeed God. So what we see is, as we see, and you can see it other places in the Bible as well, John chapter 14. So just because that designation is given to Jesus, because Jesus and the Father are one, they are one, the same attributes and activities, uh, the same attributes, characteristics, all the omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, omni, omnipotent, and all of those things, certainly, though Jesus limited himself to those things when he walked on this earth, would be characteristics of both God the Father and God the Son. 
So here we see back in Revelation chapter 1 from Him who is and who was and who is to come. You and I, it basically is just saying the eternality of God, the eternal existence of God in eternity past and in, in eternity future and therefore He is present even now. So here's a question. Which direction of eternity do you have the most difficult grasping if you had to think about it, do you struggle more to think about eternity in the future? Or do you struggle more to give you more of a headache, if you will, to think about eternity past? You and I had a beginning point, And it's difficult for you and I to understand that before the beginning point there was, right? In the beginning, Genesis 1 says, God. Created. It doesn't say in the beginning God became. He, he didn't became. God was there. The Bible assumes the eternality of God. It doesn't try to convince us of the eternality of God. It just states it. In the beginning, well, what was the beginning? Whenever the beginning is and whatever the beginning was, God was already there and God was already present. And wrap your mind around that. And then wrap your mind around the fact that right, we think of being with Him forever in heaven for millions and millions of years. But understand that whatever the equivalent of that time is in the future, the same equivalent of time occurred in the past. Because, and God was always there. He was always there. I think for me, I struggle more to think about eternity past than I, than I, than I do to think about eternity future. Maybe it's because in the where I am and as long as I've been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can understand at least mentally, though I can't understand it experientially yet, that there's coming a day, right, that I'm going to die or a day that Jesus is going to come. But that's not the end. It feels like the end oftentimes, but our theology and our Bible teaching teaches us that that's not the end, that that's, listen, that's just the beginning, if you had a rope a mile long, or should I say chain, a mile long, and if you had a link in that chain, if you had a chain with that had a million links in that chain, or two million links in that chain, or three million links in that chain, do you realize that your life that's spent upon this earth would not even be equivalent to one link in that chain? Mm. And yet we spend all of our time trying to be comfortable and be satisfied here in our one little link rather than storing up treasure and, and laying those foundations and doing those things we need to do that we could enjoy in His presence for the other two million links up of that chain. And by the way, when you get to two million links, there's another two million. When you get to that one, there's another two million. you get to that one, there's another two million. The truth is, you and I can't grasp eternity in any direction. But just think, as far as you can in any image and anything. One writer said this. He said it would be as if there was a sparrow. And a sparrow could go to all the oceans of the earth and could pick up the sand one pebble at a time and fly to the moon and deposit it when that little sparrow would fly back and pick up one pebble and take it to the moon and deposit it and come back and pick up another one when all the pebbles of all the sands of all the beaches in the world were transported to heaven eternity would have only just began 
We've got to understand that this God is a God who was and who is and who is to come. What about this one? What about this one? And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. That's an interesting designation as well. The seven spirits who are before His throne. If we would say that the first is about God the Father, and we know it talks about and Jesus coming up, then this certainly would refer to the Holy Spirit of God. But where does this designation come from? Well, let's just kind of take a sneak peek at it quickly. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to um, the book of Zechariah. Now, the book of Zechariah is easy to find. If you go to the start of the New Testament, which you know is the, is the Gospel of Matthew, and hang a left, if you go uh, the first blank page between the Old Testament and New Testament, it's about 400 years, but then you get to Malachi. Keep walking, go one more block, and you'll be... Uh, at Zechariah. Zechariah. Zechariah is a fascinating book, and we have studied some things in Zechariah before in chapter 3 and about the place where God says that Jesus is the branch, the branch is coming, and that special place where God and Satan were. But when you come to chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, we see some interesting things that, that tie in directly to the book of Revelation. And so let's just pick up in chapter four. Let's pick up in verse, um, verse. Let's just pick up in verse one. So again, go to the book of Matthew and turn left, and um, you'll be in the book of Malachi and go one more book. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, now look at this, a lampstand, all of gold with its bow, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. So you see that? So here's this thing. It's 777. Seven would be a number that would refer to God. God rested on the seventh day. Seventh day is the number of perfection or completion and these things that are tied there. But we're not, we're not left to figure out what these things are. But we want to know because verse 4 says, uh, Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these things? My Lord. So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And just to be clear, go down to to verse, verse 10. This, of course, is a time when they were rebuilding the, the temple. Verse 10, uh, Who has despised a day of small things, but these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now look at this. These are the eyes of the Lord which reign. So what is a seven? These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Throughout the earth. So we have uh, we see this designation, if you will, according to verse six of the Spirit. Now let's not get too concerned about you know the freaky lookingness of this particular spirit. 
Remember, you can't see a spirit, and certainly in the book of Revelation, having seven eyes, uh, that would be pretty scary, right? If you see, I mean, you know, when you see things with, with, you know, it seems deformed, and you think, why in the world would, would God do that? It's just a, 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 a representation, a manifestation, if you will. Remember, the Holy Spirit is spirit, and at various times in the Bible, in order for us to be able to know that the Holy Spirit is present, is God had to put some sort of physical manifestation on the Spirit of God. And you, you already know not only this one, but you know two more. Remember, in the Gospels at Jesus' baptism... Jesus is there and Jesus goes down in the water and He comes up. So there's Jesus standing in the water. What happens when Jesus comes out, out of the when, when Jesus is there coming out of the water? The Holy Spirit of God descends. Now listen to this. As a dove. Now beloved, don't think that the Holy Spirit has a beak and wings. Okay? Um, that that's not. It was just a, a representation, a manifestation. Uh, a, a dove is not a bird of prey. A dove is a symbol of peace, and and all of these things. But in order for us to know that the Holy Spirit had was there and was present, God manifested the Holy Spirit, if you will, as a dove. Doesn't say it is a dove. The Holy Spirit is a dove. It says as a dove. In the book of Acts, we see another manifestation, right? When the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, what did it say? That there were tongues as of fire. So you had the sound of a mighty rushing wind, so the sound of a hurricane, and then these flames, these tongues of fire dancing. Now, you've never seen that. Uh, at least I hope you've never seen that. Uh, if you have, don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. But there in Acts chapter 2, those tongues as of fire, right, danced on their heads, symbolizing what? That what they were waiting for, right? You will be empowered when the Holy Spirit has, has come upon you. Well, if the Holy Spirit is spirit, how in the world would they ever know? There had to be some some manifestation. And so basically what this means then is, is some say it refers in the book of Isaiah to the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. But basically it's just saying that the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit, go back to Revelation chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, right, with those seven eyes, sees and knows everything. Sees and knows everything. Back in Revelation chapter 1, look at, look at what it says. It says, and from the seven spirits who are, now look at this, who are before His throne. So are you getting the idea? This passage is, is teaching us about the Trinity. It's teaching us about God the Father. It's teaching us the Holy Spirit. Where is it? It's before the throne. It's in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is God and yet they are not the same. You and I cannot grasp, cannot understand the Trinity whatsoever. But we can affirm that the Bible teaches it. And one day when we get to heaven, perhaps we will understand it. But the Bible is saying that the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not the same. But they are equal and they are one. They are one. N- not one like the two becomes together in marriage and shall be one. 
Right? Because you can be in a marriage and be one and still be far, far apart. Right? So I'm not talking about that. But in a, in a way, in a dynamic union, unlike anything that we could understand, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are one. They have the same attributes, the same characteristics, the same abilities. And the Holy Spirit of God with His seven eyes is all over the face of earth. Let me just simplify it for you. There's nothing, there's nowhere you can go. There's nothing that you can do. Oh, you may be able to do it without people seeing you. And I know sometimes we even like to do things when people we don't know, we might let them see us doing it because we don't know them people. But we don't want people we know seeing. But listen, even if there's no one within a hundred miles of what you're doing, who could possibly see God sees. God sees. Brother Lawrence wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And basically what it says is, is when you get into heaven, where are you going to spend your life? You're going to spend all of eternity in the presence of God. What would happen? How would your life and my life change if we would practice the presence of God now? If we would understand that everywhere we go, listen, God is with us. How would it change our actions? How would it change our attitude? How would it change our words? How would it change how we serve one another? How we love one another? How we give? How we go? How we do whatever? If we understand understood that God was with us. Folks, God is with us. And may I remind you that God is not just out there, but when you were saved, the Holy Spirit of God and all of God came to live and dwell you and live inside of you and indwell you. And the fullness of God lives in you. And wherever you go, you Take Him and whatever you do, you engage Him in the same activity. The sevenfold Spirit of God. And then notice, if you would, verse 5, in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to make a striking... This is fascinating to me because typically whenever you study the Bible particularly in Matthew chapter 28 and other places, where Matthew 28 says, right, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When the Trinity is designated, it is often designated as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you notice the change in the order? Here, it's the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. Now, is that significant? Perhaps it's significant. I believe it's significant because I believe everything in the Bible is done for a purpose. I don't think God does things without there being a purpose. And part of the purpose is He is God. He can do whatever He wants to do. But perhaps another part is, is because it shows the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Because when He introduces Jesus here, really the rest of the book, though God the Father is there and the Spirit is there, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he intentionally changes the order, brings Jesus last in order to in order to put all of the focus and all of the attention on Jesus from here through the rest of the book because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But now look at this designation of Jesus. Look at this designation of Jesus. Here in this designation of Jesus, I want you to see how it describes Him. 
and from Jesus Christ. Now look at this, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth. So there are three designations for Jesus that are found here. And most of the time when you read the book of Revelation and a lot of the commentaries and sermons I've listened to, they just said in from Jesus and read those things and moved on. And moved on. And yet I think it's important that we pause and that we look at these three designations because remember, to the, to the, the, the readers of this letter in that day who would be much more familiar with the Old Testament than we are, these things here would be breathtaking. They would read this and go, ah! they, they would read this and it would so capture their attention. It would immediately drive them to the Old Testament and where these designations are found because they're found in one psalm and that's in Psalm 89. So when the readers would read this, they would automatically think Psalm 89 and tie Psalm 89 in with the person of Jesus Christ. So, so let's go there. Let's go to Psalm 89. And let's kick around in Psalm 89 for, for a few minutes and look at these designations of, of Jesus. I think it's fascinating, right? You think of all the places in the Bible. I told you before, four out of five verses refer to, allude to, or direct quote from the Old Testament. And it's important that we have that foundation because it kind of really helps things come to light. So here in Psalm 89, for example, the first designation of Jesus is that He is the faithful witness. Let's take a look at that in Psalm 89. Now, Psalm 89 is a, is a, a longer psalm. It's 52 verses, and I'm going to let you read those. But, but basically, uh, this is uh, about the Lord's covenant with David, and it's about Israel's afflictions. It's about Israel's afflictions. And so um, what it says is, uh, if you, for example, if you would, um, go down to verse... Uh, well, let's this, this start, this start in verse 1. We're going to skip through. We read these, but notice what it says in verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Stop and think about this. So I want to look at this psalm in the context of David's, the Davidic covenant, David's covenant. Remember, God made a covenant with David that he would establish his throne forever and there would be one who would come and reign from David's throne whose reign would never end. Now, has that happened yet? So you can just throw your Bible away and say, well, it hadn't happened, that must be a lie. Or Bible-believing Christians say it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. So here, here in this, uh, for example, if you would, just go to verse 5. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to you? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? And this, So you get the idea. It's about the Davidic covenant. And they're longing for the one who is to reign on the Davidic covenant forever and ever to come. 
But look down to verse 34. The Lord's response is, is this. Uh, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I uh, alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendant shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. Look at this, verse 37. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Though they don't see it here, they know one to come is going to be a faithful witness. And not till we get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, do we see that tied and connected to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Well, what about, what about the firstborn uh, of the dead? The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Well, if you go back to Psalm 89, let's just pick up in verse 24. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Look at this, verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So look at this designation. It doesn't say, I will make him be born first. We make a mistake. Sometimes people say that Jesus is not God because Jesus was not born first, right? Uh, Adam was born first, or technically the sons of Adam were, were born first. So who is this talking about? But notice what it says. It doesn't say he will be born first. He says, I will make him born first. Listen, firstborn is... Right? It is a title. It is a designation given. That, that's what it is. It's a designation given. Remember, in Jewish culture, the son had nothing to do with the daughters. Sorry, my daughters. But the son that was born first, Eli's happy. Uh, the son that, that, that is born first, right, receives the, the lion's share of the inheritance, the, the double portion, right? It's the, it's the coat of many colors that Joseph received. You go on and on and on. It's the, it's the double blessing, the double portion that would come upon the, the Jewish son. Now, son, don't get too happy because you're definitely not Jewish. Okay? Uh, you're definitely not Jewish. And uh, so, this is just in the, in the Jewish context. But basically what he's saying is, he's saying that he will make him the firstborn and he will give him, remember Psalm 2, the inheritance of the nations will be given to him. And look what else will be given to him. Look at what it says even right here. Even right here. Uh, It says, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this one who is born first has the greatest title. He is the has the highest honor. He is right the highest uh, one. He is the has the greatest honor. He is the the one who has been given the double measure, the blessing of the greatest one, the title, the designation. You can read about this in Colossians chapter one as well, because it talks about being Jesus being the firstborn. 
ek out of the dead. And of course, Jesus certainly rose from, uh, from the tomb and was the firstborn from the dead. So here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, again, we see that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And then notice also, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Go back to Psalm 89, really right there where we, where we just were. Notice what it says, chapter 89, verse 27. The highest of the kings of the earth, my loving kindness will keep him forever. My covenant will be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever. Now look at this, verse 29. And his throne as the days of heaven. Just quickly though, I'd want you to notate that when you look at this, you look at this psalm and you hear these things, the psalmist would die without ever seeing the reality of these things taking place. The psalmist would read all these things. They would respond, right, in praise, right? Psalm 1, I'll sing of your loving kindness. Your testimony will be on my lips. But he would die and never see the fulfillment of the things he was inspired to read about. In fact, if you would, look at the beginning of this psalm, Psalm 89. It's entitled, The Lord's Covenant with David and Israel's Affliction. And don't don't miss this. Look at what this psalm is. Look at the designation between the title and and verse 1. Does your Bible have a little designation that says a masculine of Ethan, the Ezraite? This is not a psalm of David. This is a masculine. This is a uh, this is this is a, um, written by by Ethan. Now, who is Ethan the Ezraite? Well, the Ezraite would be one who would be a disciple. Our terminology of Ezra the priest, or it would be one who would come after Ezra and 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 be influenced, be taught, be led according to Ezra. Ezra, of course, was the priest who, um, once Jerusalem was dis- once the glory of God departed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the the children of Israel um, were carried off into Babylonian captivity, and they were there for seventy years. And after that, many had lost their lives, and many were destroyed. A remnant returns and sees the destruction. Remember Nehemiah, and sees the destruction, and see the walls are torn down, and sees the desecration of the temple, and all of those things, it would be Ezra who would minister during that time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And it would be Ezra who would be used once progress began to be made that God would use to preach the Word of God and to bring the Word of God in its fullness of revival in the land, if you will, by putting the priority and emphasis on the Word of God. Here is this one, and this one is looking for Right? Ethan, one who followed. He's, he's, he's looking out and, and he's saying, where, where is uh, this one? In fact, look in Psalm 89. Look, look towards the end of it, if you would. After all of these things, um, down in verse 34, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, verse 36 says, and his throne as the sun before me. Faithful witness there in verse 37, Selah. But now the reality of verse 38. Then where is this? But you have cast off and rejected 
You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant. You have profaned. You've done all of these things. And verse goes down to verse 46. How long, O Lord? We know all these great truths, but, but how long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is. Lord, are you going to do this in my lifetime? Remember what the span of my life is. What, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Verse 49, Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Lord, where is the truthfulness of all this? When are you coming? When are you coming to reign? When will we see this happen? The fact is, is Ethan would die and others would follow him and die and others would come and die claiming, believing and reading and clinging to the promises found in Psalm 89 and they would die without seeing it. And then one day, in Bethlehem, just as the prophet said, this little one, this child, designated as God, named Jesus by the angels, would come. And He would be born and He would live the perfect sinless life and they would refer to Him as King Jesus. They would sit at the mount and listen to Him teach as a king to kingdom constituents. And yet, even then, He never once took His rightful place at that throne. Beloved, you and I better be glad that He did not come to reign. He came to die. Because had He not come to die, you and I would not be invited and included in His kingdom in order that when He comes and reign, Revelation says that we will reign with Him. Be glad He didn't come to reign before He came to die. Because in coming to die, He purchased our pardon. He brought us into the family of God. He forgave us of our sins. He said all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He empowered us with His Spirit of God who lives inside of us. And He is coming again. And beloved, if we die and breathe our last before He comes, we will go to be with Him. Or if He comes back before we die, we still go to be with Him. Without seeing, without seeing the fulfillment of these things, the psalmist in Psalm 89 concludes, Blessed be the Lord forever. Can you say that? When you don't see the hand of God working and moving in your life the way that you think it should. When you don't see God operating the way that you think He should when He's not working as fast or as quickly or the way that it is. Can you in the midst cling to the promises of God even to your dying breath and say, Blessed are you, O Lord, forever. 
and ever. Amen and amen. Beloved, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can. Why? Last thing, Revelation chapter 4. I've got to show you this before we close. We've talked about the Father. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about Jesus. And I just want to point this out. Look at what it says. Firstborn of the dead, the ruler, the kings of the earth, greater than Nebuchadnezzar, greater than the Antichrist, greater than Satan. Listen, greater than any ruler that's ever lived is the Lord Jesus Himself. Look at this. To Him. Beloved, everywhere in your Bible, of all the passages that you can read... It says this, for God so what? Loved. loved. Past tense. Right? What does it say in the book of Ephesians, right? He loved us and gave his life for us. Why does it say past tense? Oh, it's good and it's rich and it's glorious that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son and that He loved us. And there's multiple designations in the New Testament. We'll talk about this next week. But this is the only place in the Bible where it says, where it says, to Him who loves us. This Jesus, this God, is not just all of these things that we've looked at today, but He is personal and He is intimate and He loves you. And I cannot wait to tell you about how He loves you next week. And you're going to leave singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible. Tells me so. Next week, beloved, we'll get there. Well, as you know, we um, have an opportunity to reflect on all these things. And we want you to take time to reflect on these truths and go back and study them. Was that worthwhile today? I mean, really to slow down and to look and to dig and go back and read Psalm 89 and study it for yourself. There's so many things that we left out. And But beloved, here's what I want you to know. If you are a child of God, then I want you to know that this is the God who loves you. And you're going to see the ways in which He loves you next week. But I want you to know that He just doesn't love people. He loves you. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Never lose sight of the fact that Jesus loves you. But if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've never come to the place of salvation then, beloved, you've got to repent and believe the gospel. You've got to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. You've got to be willing for Him to be the Lord of your life. There's no separation between His salvation and His Lordship. To know Him is to love Him. To love Him is to trust Him. And to trust Him is to obey Him. And that means He impacts every decision of your life. 
it's important that you come to the place where you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, that you repent and believe the gospel so that you can experience the love of God in the fullness. What does Romans 5 say? But God, listen, He doesn't just tell us He loves us. He demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let us not ever forget the price that He paid in order to bring us into the family of God. And thus, therefore, believer, let's make sure that our lives reflect the gratitude that He so greatly deserves. And let us ensure that by His strength and by His power that we are accomplishing that which He would have us accomplish for our good and for His glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand for our closing. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the blessings of life. We are so thankful that Jesus loves us. We are so thankful. God, I'm so thankful for a group of people who simply want to hover over Your Word and to study and um, unpack these truths to see what we can find and what's there. Father, I'm thankful that in the midst of studying Your Word that You are busy transforming our lives. As we study the truths of who You are, You convict us of sin. You transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus. You touch on areas of our lives that doesn't look like Jesus. And Lord, You um, continue to shape us and mold us and to make us. Father, I pray if we live all the days of our life without the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the days get darker and darker and evil and more evil, that, Father, that we too would say, Blessed are you, O Lord, forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you and have a great week. Look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. And uh, we will gather at Sybil's house and um, pray and uh, study God's Word uh, together. Y'all have a great, great day. Just put that one anywhere. It'll be fine. It'll be fine.